This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. What I Saw in America by G. K. Chesterton. Section 21. Chapter 10. Part 1. Fads and Public Opinion. A foreigner is a man who laughs at everything except jokes. He is perfectly entitled to laugh at anything so long as he realizes in a reverent and religious spirit that he himself is laughable. I was a foreigner in America, and I can truly claim that the sense of my own laughable position never left me. But when the native and the foreigner have finished with seeing the fun in each other, in things that are meant to be serious, they both approach the far more delicate and dangerous ground of things that are meant to be funny. The sense of humor is generally very national. Perhaps that is why the internationalists are so careful to purge themselves of it. I had occasion during the war to consider the rights and wrongs of certain differences alleged to have arisen between the English and American soldiers at the front and rightly or wrongly i came to the conclusion that they arose from a failure to understand when a foreigner is serious and when he is humorous and it is in the very nature of the best sort of joke to be the worst sort of insult if it is not taken as a joke the english and the american types of humor are in one way directly contrary the most american sort of fun involves a soaring imagination piling one house on another in a tower like that of a skyscraper. The most English humor consists of a sort of bathos, of a man returning to the earth, his mother, in a homely fashion, as when he sits down suddenly on a butter slide. English farce describes a man as being in a hole. American fantasy, in its more aspiring spirit, describes a man as being up a tree. The former is to be found in the cockney comic songs that concern themselves with hanging out the washing or coming home with the milk. The latter is to be found in those fantastic yarns about machines that turn live pigs into pigskin purses or burning cities that serve to hatch an egg. But it will be inevitable when the two first come into contact that bathos will sound like vulgarity and the extravagance will sound like boasting. Suppose an American soldier said to an English soldier in the trenches, The Kaiser may want a place in the sun. I reckon he won't have a place in the solar system when we begin to hustle. The English soldier will very probably form the impression that this is arrogance, an impression based on the extraordinary assumption that the American means what he says. The American has merely indulged in a little art for art's sake, an abstract adventure of the imagination. He has told an American short story, but the Englishman, not understanding this, will think the other man is boasting, and reflecting on the insufficiency of the English effort. The English soldier is very likely to say something like, oh, you'll be wanting to get home to your old woman before that, and asking for a kipper with your tea. And it is quite likely that the American will be offended in his turn, at having his arabesque of abstract beauty answered in so personal a fashion. Being an American, he will probably have a fine and chivalrous respect for his wife, and may object to her being called an old woman. Possibly he, in turn, may be under the extraordinary delusion that talking of the old woman really means that the woman is old. 
Possibly, he thinks, the mysterious demand for a kipper carries with it some charge of ill-treating his wife, which his national sense of honour swiftly resents. But the real cross-purposes come from the contrary direction of the two exaggerations, the American making life more wild and impossible than it is, and the Englishman making it more flat and farcical than it is, the one escaping from the house of life by a skylight and the other by a trap-door. This difficulty of different humours is a very practical one for practical people. Most of those who profess to remove all international differences are not practical people. Most of the phrases offered for the reconciliation of severally patriotic peoples are entirely serious and even solemn phrases. But human conversation is not conducted in those phrases. The normal man on nine occasions out of ten is rather a flippant man, and the normal man is almost always the national man. Patriotism is the most popular of all the virtues. The drier sort of democrats who despise it have the democracy against them in every country in the world. Hence their international efforts seldom go any farther than to effect an international reconciliation of all internationalists. But we have not solved the normal and popular problem until we have an international reconciliation of all nationalists. It is very difficult to see how humour can be translated at all. When Sam Weller is in the fleet prison, and Mrs. Weller and Mr. Stiggins sit on each side of the fireplace and weep and groan with sympathy, old Mr. Weller observes, Vel, Sammy, I hope you find your spirits rose by this ere lively visit. I have never looked up this passage in the popular and successful French version of Pickwick, but I confess I am curious as to what French past participle conveys the precise effect of the word rose. A translator has not only to give the right translation of the right word, but the right translation of the wrong word. And in the same way I am quite prepared to suspect that there are English jokes which an Englishman must enjoy in his own rich and romantic solitude, without asking for the sympathy of an American. But Englishmen are generally only too prone to claim this fine perception, without seeing that the fine edge of it cuts both ways. I have begun this chapter on the note of national humour, because I wish to make it quite clear that I realise how easily a foreigner may take something seriously that is not serious. When I think something in America is really foolish, it may be that I am made a fool of it is the first duty of traveller to allow for this, but it seems to be the very last thing that occurs to some travellers. But when I seek to say something of what may be called the fantastic side of America, I allow beforehand that some of it may be meant to be fantastic, and indeed it is very difficult to believe that some of it is meant to be serious. But whether or no there is a joke, there is certainly an inconsistency, and it is an inconsistency of the moral make-up of America which both puzzles and amuses me. The danger of democracy is not anarchy, but convention. There is even a sort of double meaning in the word convention, for it is also used for the most informal and popular sort of parliament, a parliament not summoned by any king. The Americans come together very easily without any king, but their coming together is in every sense a convention, and even a very conventional convention. 
In a democracy, riot is rather the exception, and respectability certainly the rule. And though a superficial sightseer should hesitate about all such generalizations, and certainly should allow for enormous exceptions to them, he does receive a general impression of unity, verging on uniformity. Thus Americans all dress well, one might almost say that American women all look well, but they do not, as compared with Europeans, look very different. They are in the fashion, too much in the fashion even to be conspicuously fashionable. Of course there are patches, both Bohemian and Babylonian, of which this is not true, but I am talking of the general tone of a whole democracy. I have said there is more respectability than riot, but indeed, in a deeper sense, the same spirit is behind both riot and respectability. It is the same social force that makes it possible for the respectable to boycott a man and for the riotous to lynch him. I do not object to it being called the herd instinct, so long as we realize that it is a metaphor and not an explanation. Public opinion can be a prairie fire. It eats up everything that opposes it, and there is the grandeur as well as the grave disadvantage of a natural catastrophe in that national unity. Pacifists who complain in England of the intolerance of patriotism have no notion of what patriotism can be like. If they had been in America after America had entered the war, they would have seen something which they have always perhaps subconsciously dreaded, and would then have beyond all their worst dreams detested, and the name of it is democracy. They would have found that there are disadvantages in birds of a feather flocking together, and that one of them follows on a too complacent display of the white feather. The truth is that a certain flexible sympathy with eccentrics of this kind is rather one of the advantages of an aristocratic tradition. The imprisonment of Mr. Debs, the American pacifist, which really was prolonged and oppressive, would probably have been shortened in England, where his opinions were shared by aristocrats like Mr. Bertrand Russell and Mr. Ponsonby. A man like Lord Hugh Cecil would be moved to the defense of conscientious objectors, partly by a true instinct of chivalry, but partly also by the general feeling that a gentleman may very probably have aunts and uncles who are quite as mad. He takes the matter personally, in the sense of being able to imagine the psychology of the persons. But the democracy is no respecter of persons. It is no respecter of them either in the bad and servile, or in the good and sympathetic sense. And Debs was nothing to the democracy. He was but one of the millions. This is a real problem or question in the balance, touching different forms of government, which is, of course, quite neglected by the idealists who merely repeat long words. There was during the war a society called the Union of Democratic Control, which would have been instantly destroyed anywhere where democracy had any control, or where there was any union. And in this sense the United States have most emphatically got a union. Nevertheless, I think there is something rather more subtle than this simple popular solidity behind the assimilation of American citizens to each other. There is something even in the individual ideal that drives towards this social sympathy. And it is here that we have to remember that biological fancies like the herd instinct are only figures of speech, and cannot really cover anything human.
for the Americans are in some ways a very self-conscious people. To compare their social enthusiasm to a stampede of cattle is to ask us to believe in a bull writing a diary, or a cow looking in a looking-glass. Intensely sensitive by their very vitality, they are certainly conscious of criticism, and not merely of a blind and brutal appetite. But the peculiar point about them is that it is this very vividness in the self that often produces the similarity. It may be that when they are unconscious they are like bulls and cows, but it is when they are self-conscious that they are like each other. Individualism is the death of individuality. It is so if only because it is an ism. Many Americans become almost impersonal in their worship of personality. Where their natural selves might differ, their ideal selves tend to be the same. Anybody can see what I mean in those strong self-conscious photographs of American businessmen that can be seen in any American magazine. Each may conceive himself to be a solitary Napoleon brooding at St. Helena, but the result is a multitude of Napoleons brooding all over the place. Each of them must have the eyes of a mesmerist, but the most weak-minded person cannot be mesmerized by more than one millionaire at a time. Each of the millionaires must thrust forward his jaw, offering, if I may say so, to fight the world with the same weapons as Samson. Each of them must accentuate the length of his chin, especially, of course, by always being completely clean-shaven. It would be obviously inconsistent with personality to prefer to wear a beard. These are, of course, fantastic examples on the fringe of American life, but they do stand for a certain assimilation not through brute gregariousness, but rather through isolated dreaming. And though it is not always carried so far as this, I do not think it is carried too far. There is not quite enough unconsciousness to produce real individuality. There is a sort of worship of will-power in the abstract, so that people are actually thinking about how they can will more than about what they want. To this I do think a certain corrective could be found in the nature of English eccentricity. Every man in his humour is most interesting when he is unconscious of his humour, or at least when he is in an intermediate stage between humour in the old sense of oddity and in the new sense of irony. Much is said in these days against negative morality, and certainly most Americans would show a positive preference for positive morality. The virtues they venerate collectively are very active virtues, cheerfulness and courage and vim, otherwise zip also pep and similar things. But it is sometimes forgotten that negative morality is freer than positive morality. Negative morality is a net of a larger and more open pattern, of which the lines or cords constrict at longer intervals. A man like Dr. Johnson could grow in his own way to his own stature in the net of the Ten Commandments, precisely because he was convinced that there were only ten of them. He was not compressed into the mould of positive beauty, like that of the Apollo Belvedere or the American citizen. This criticism is sometimes true even of the American woman, who is certainly a much more delightful person than the mesmeric millionaire with his shaven jaw. Interviewers in the United States perpetually asked me what I thought of American women and I confess the distaste for such generalizations which I have not managed to lose. The Americans who are the most chivalrous people in the world may perhaps understand me, 
but I can never help feeling that there is something polygamous about talking of women in the plural at all, something unworthy of any American except a Mormon. Nevertheless, I think the exaggeration I suggest does extend in a less degree to American women, fascinating as they are. I think they too tend too much to this cult of impersonal personality. It is a description easy to exaggerate even by the faintest emphasis, for all these things are subtle and subject to striking individual exceptions. To complain of people for being brave and bright and kind and intelligent may not unreasonably appear unreasonable. And yet there is something in the background that can only be expressed by a symbol, something that is not shallowness but a neglect of the subconsciousness and the vaguer and slower impulses, something that can be missed amid all that laughter and light under those starry candelabra of the ideals of the happy virtues. Sometimes it came over me in a wordless wave that I should like to see a sulky woman how she would walk in beauty like the night, and reveal more silent spaces full of older stars. These things cannot be conveyed in their delicate proportion, even in the most detached description. But the same thing was in the mind of a white-bearded old man I met in New York, an Irish exile and a wonderful talker, who stared up at the tower of gilded galleries of the great hotel, and said with that spontaneous movement of style which is hardly heard except from Irish talkers, and I have been in a village in the mountains where the people could hardly read or write, but all the men were like soldiers, and all the women had pride. The end of section twenty one.